Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We've waited a few days to see who might be running to replace Theresa May and also to see what happened in the Euro election results. And now I've got Helen here and we're going to try and work out what it means. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. People are joining the Tory leadership race all the time. There have been some epic tweets. I don't know if you saw Jesse Norman's one yesterday. 30 tweets in which he was trying to decide whether he should run or not. Uh, James Cleverly maybe joining in, Kit Malthouse. I don't think we can cover the runners and riders. The European election results are very stark. I think people will probably know the headlines. The Brexit Party came first. The Liberal Democrats came second. The Labour Party did really badly in lots of places, and we'll come on to that. And the Greens did well. So we're going to try in half an hour and sweep all that up into something. Let's start with the Brexit Party. So Helen, this is the bit, you're going to have to talk me through this. This is the bit I can't square. Two general assumptions that people have made about these results and what they mean for the Conservative Party and particularly for the people who would like to be Prime Minister soon. Those candidates have got to somehow move in a more Brexit Party direction. So they are embracing the possibility, even in some cases, the probability of a no-deal Brexit at the end of October. And secondly, the Conservative Party cannot face a general election without having delivered Brexit. If they do, the Brexit Party will just eat them alive. But those two things seem to me to be inconsistent, because if you push really hard for a no-deal Brexit, you will collapse the government that does it, because this parliament won't allow it, and you'll get a general election, which you'll then have to fight not having delivered Brexit. So it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. And there's the real possibility that if you won the leadership and got enough Conservatives in place that didn't collapse the government, which is highly unlikely anyway, is is that Parliament then votes to revoke Article 50. So the and only that's way, also not going to be a good look in a general election. The only the way Brexit out plus. of it, I think, would be for either the European Court of Justice or for the European Council not to accept that Article 50 had been revoked in good faith, because that was the condition that was attached to it in the European Court's ruling that the United Kingdom or any member state had a unilateral right to revoke Article 50. So what happens then? So that effectively the UK... How does that rescue the, the Conservative U- Party? Well, the UK is expelled effectively from the European Union because there's neither a possibility of an extension... So the or, Tories go to the country saying, look, we got ourselves expelled yeah. by the European Court. <laughs> Absolutely, Vote <yeah>. Boris. <laughs> All I was trying to get at is, is the point is, is that gets the UK out of the, the European Union because otherwise it's incredibly difficult to see without there being a Conservative leader who could either take this withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons or can get some cosmetic changes to it that would then allow it to go through the House of Commons. It's very difficult to see how this happens. Now, I still don't think you should kind of like rule out the possibilities of where the withdrawal treaties concerned because 
those people in the Conservative Party who support Brexit are not the only ones who've had their calculations changed by what's happened in the last 48 hours. In my mind, the only two ways you can square this circle, but neither of them sound that plausible to me, is what a number of the leadership candidates are saying, which is this is a negotiating position Mm. and genuinely taking a no-deal Brexit seriously does give us a chance of getting some concessions out of Europe. And then we have a chance of getting a deal through Parliament. But that does assume that the Europeans with whom they would be negotiating, and there's a question about when, before October, don't also see the weakness of any Conservative government. Why would they make concessions? They know just as much as we know that no deal isn't going to go through this Parliament. The other possibility is the government does collapse and Boris Johnson or whoever goes to the country and says, look, we tried, this parliament stopped us. If you vote Brexit party, you'll get a Corbyn government, you will get a soft deal with a referendum. So your only prospect of a clean break with Europe is to vote Conservative. But both of those are a huge stretch. They are a huge stretch. I mean, I'll say on the first, though, we have to keep getting out of this position where we look at it only from the United Kingdom's point of view. It is now a fairly important political and geopolitical question for the EU27 that they've never really wanted to answer, I think, which is whether they want the United Kingdom inside the European Union or not. Say they decide that in the end they want to help a new Conservative government find a way out to prevent a clean break, but also to prevent this dragging on forever. What do they do? Do they abandon Ireland? Do they abandon the backstop? I think abandoning the backstop is out of the question. The question is, is like whether some minor and more than minor concession can be made that can be dressed up as something more than that, that would allow the withdrawal agreement to go through the House of Commons. I still think that that would be the first preference of most of the states in the European Union, not all the states in the European Union. The problem is that they cannot make significant concessions that look like Ireland's been abandoned. So the space for some flexibility you know, is relatively small. In one sense, I think, though, that also begs the question is, would it be possible for a new Conservative leader to do better with the withdrawal agreement, plus a little bit, than Theresa May was able to do? One thing I think will not happen is that a new Conservative leader, whoever that person is, will not attract more Labour support than Theresa May did. So it's got to be through the Conservative Party, doesn't it? Are there any circumstances in which, say, Jeremy Hunt or whoever can persuade Labour MPs who weren't willing to prop up a May government to give him a fair crack? Well, I think that that it is more difficult in terms of the domestic politics of that for Labour MPs in relation to who leads the Conservative Party. On the other hand, you know, some of those Labour MPs who actually did want Brexit to go over the line but didn't actually want to be seen to um, be voting for it are now in a position where they've seen what happened in the North and in the Midlands, or in parts of the North anyway, in parts of the uh, Midlands in the European Parliament election, and they're now confronting a Labour Party that is being dragged towards a not quite clear but almost clear second referendum position. So I do think that their calculations are changed by what has happened because what they wanted, I think, was for Brexit to happen without them having to vote for it and Labour never having got to the position where it was committed to a second referendum and now neither of those things are true so in that sense I think that group of MPs has miscalculated quite badly. One last thing on this people who are saying if you look at these results and these results are easy to overinterpret, the clear loser is the withdrawal agreement you know, the parties who are taking a clear position against it either second referendum remain or no deal leave 
were winning a share of the vote that's close to comparable to the share of the vote that the Labour Party and the Conservative Party got at the last general election, the defenders, if there were any, of this compromise withdrawal agreement version of Brexit were not getting any votes. Does that give people pause who want to resuscitate it? In electoral terms, it looks toxic. I think that it is toxic in, in electoral terms in a, in a number of ways, though I would be a bit hesitant about saying that everybody who was voting for the Brexit party was necessarily opposed to the withdrawal agreement. I think that the the problem is, is though, as right from the start, our politics has got to intersect with the politics of the, the European Union. And it is quite difficult to see how it is possible for the UK, given our domestic politics and given the EU's position, to leave the European Union except in an orderly way via a withdrawal agreement. Because when it comes to it, there is a majority in Parliament who will revoke before that they will accept no deal, or at least that's what it looks like. And if you end up with a general election and a, a new Conservative leader manages to cobble together some kind of small majority, which I think is difficult to imagine right now, is you'd still be faced with not dissimilar parliamentary arithmetic, not least because you've still got Conservatives MPs who are opposed to Britain leaving the European Union, you've still got the three who left for change UK and you've still got the, the DUP's position. Sorry, you don't think that a new election would actually change the calculations of the House of Commons? I don't know at this point, I don't know if you know how much churn there would be among members. I mean, not everyone will come back, right? And including the Change UK people probably wouldn't be coming back. So Post an election, you have a new parliament, say a Conservative leader by some miracle has scraped together a majority. That's a lot of political capital. People would have been elected on the coattails of that leader. Doesn't that fundamentally change the calculation? Possibly, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't really bet on it um, necessarily. No, <laughs> because there still would be a, a substantial group in the House of Commons who don't want Brexit to happen. And once you throw in then the people who aren't going to be happy with whatever was in this withdrawal agreement, including the DUP, then you're going to be in borderline territory at best where getting to a majority is concerned. The Liberal Democrats, so you mentioned that Labour did badly. Labour did badly everywhere. Labour did catastrophically badly in Scotland. And if you look at what happened in Scotland, it's almost impossible to see how you get from there on any scenario to Labour winning a majority in the House of Commons because Scotland seems to have gone. Labour did catastrophically badly in Wales. Labour did badly in Brexit areas of the North and the Midlands, but Labour also did badly, I'll just give you an example, because we talked about it last week, in Cambridge. So the Cambridge result doesn't mean anything in many ways, but given we had this conversation about, is Cambridge now a safe Labour seat? Because it went from being a marginal to one with a 12,000 plus majority. So in Cambridge, in these elections, Labour came fourth, well behind the Liberal Democrats, well behind the Greens, behind the Brexit Party. And I quoted our MP, Daniel Zeichner, saying last time, you should never think in a seat like Cambridge that anything is stable and fixed in terms of it being safe. And I think he's probably right. The Liberal Democrats did well because no one knows what they stand for on many things and no one's really given them a hearing for years. I mean, one of the things about this is that in politics, to have a chance, people have to be willing to listen to you. And for about five years, no one's been willing to listen to the Liberal Democrats. But now they are. So they only heard one thing this time, which was bollocks to Brexit. Does that translate in a general election or in other forms of national politics into a hearing? I mean, that people will think, oh, if you 
are so clear on this issue, we want to know what you have to say about other things too. Because the Labour Party must hope not, right, that actually when it comes to a manifesto, an election, a set of domestic policies, people will not take the Liberal Democrats seriously. I think they will now. I think they've now got a hearing. I think that this is like everything else is is pretty complicated because it's clear that the Liberal Democrats didn't just win votes from Labour, that they won votes for the Conservatives as well. So that the Conservatives appear to have lost some of their remain voters to the Liberal Democrats. I think it's also fair to say that in the post-Brexit or post-referendum the political moment, we've been here before. The immediate story after June 23rd, 2016, in terms of party politics, once we'd been through the leadership elections, was that the Liberal Democrats were back. And indeed, you know, the first by-election that happened was in Whitney after David Cameron left. They didn't win the seat, but they did pretty well. They did then win the Richmond by-election. If you recall, at the beginning of the general election campaign in 2017, they were polling well. You know, you had Labour down in the low 20s in some of the polling at the beginning of that campaign, and that's because the Liberal Democrats were into the 20s too. So I would say that they've had a chance already to be the anti-Brexit party and it fell apart for them. So then we'd have to say, is this different now? And in one sense, it is because the Labour Party and the second half of the election campaign was able pretty much to, outside Scotland, to mop up most of the anti-Tory votes going and push the Liberal Democrats aside. And then when things became more difficult for Corbyn, I'd say particularly from last summer, and the anti-Semitism crisis, the Liberal Democrats weren't really the beneficiaries of that. We then got them into this simple message, the bollocks to Brexit message. Does that last? I think it, significant part depends on what Labour does, and Labour's already responded. Now, you might say, I think, that Labour's making a misjudgment in responding only to the problem that its Liberal Democrat defectors have caused it in seats like Cambridge by moving pretty much now to the second referendum position that I'm sure Corbyn can still manage to wriggle and ignoring the other side of its problems. But in one sense, from the point of view of the left Liberal Democrat voters, the act of voting Liberal Democrat has served its purpose. It's yanked Labour back to where they want it to be. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On the fundamental question, which is, Come a general election, this won't be just about Brexit. Labour still believes, I think, and a lot of people have said again after the European elections that Labour also won't want a general election. I just think from this point on, on any given day, if you give the Labour Party the opportunity of a general election, they will take it because they see the disarray around them. And I think it's now almost an article of faith among the Labour leadership that in an election campaign, their strength, a general election campaign, their strengths will come through. So for this to be a real threat for them, the Liberal Democrats would have to somehow be able to compete with them on general election territory. Liberal Democrats used to be quite good at that, putting together quite attractive sort of policy offers. 
often unscrupulously, offering different things to different people at different times. The Labour Party has weaknesses beyond Brexit. We know, we've almost forgotten that the Labour Party is not just in trouble under Corbyn's leadership because of its equivocations on Brexit. As you say, there's the anti-Semitism problem, but there's also the wider unpopularity of this strand, this brand of left-wing politics in some of its manifestations. Once the Liberal Democrats have a hearing, once people are willing to take them seriously, surely, skillfully, skillfully led, they could do real damage. I am still hesitant about this, partly because I are think... You, I just say, are you hesitant about skillfully, skillfully led? Because, I mean, there's another leadership election coming yeah. up, which is to be leader of the Liberal Democrat. This really matters. I wasn't actually being sceptical about skillfully um, led. I wasn't really thinking about that. I'm sceptical because I think that the the desire of many of, the, of Labour's voters who they put together in that coalition in 2017 to vote Labour rather than to vote for anybody else is very strong. Remember that they piled into voting, or the strong Remainers piled into voting Labour in 2017. When the party was committed to leaving the single market and the, the customs union, they piled in in the hope that the policy could be changed. And in that sense, they have, although it's taken a pretty long time, and I'd say it's done quite a lot of, caused quite a lot of political problems for our politics along the way, they have succeeded in, in doing that. So their preference of those voters is definitely not to vote Liberal Democrat. Liberal Democrat, I think, still has got problems to do with its brand that arise from the, the coalition government. They've served a useful purpose for certain kinds of voters, but I still find it difficult to see how they turn that into anything more than that. The Greens, something similar going on there, serving a very useful purpose. But the Green vote in the UK, and there are other features of the UK vote, which also have parallels across Europe, it's not just a UK phenomenon. The Greens did well pretty much everywhere. Actually, if you look at the UK vote, it's quite like the vote in France. I mean, in France, we're familiar now with the idea that the centre-left party has collapsed, but the centre-right party collapsed in France too. So this thing that the, used to be the two main parties of left and right, their equivalent of Labour and Conservative, were just squeezed almost out of existence, as they were in this country, partly by the Greens. But what we never know with the Greens is, is this a convenient way for people to express they don't want to vote for the main parties? Or do they seriously want green policies? So Leo Vardikar in Ireland responded to the Greens doing much better in Ireland than they'd done before by saying, OK, we're going to take this seriously now. People seem to want forms of green policy as well as green politics. That's going to require serious change, change on the part of government, change on the part of individuals. I took that to be a little bit of be careful what you wish for here. We might actually take this vote seriously. Any sign of that in the UK? I think, yes. I think that there is clearly a a phenomenon that is going on in, I wouldn't say it's in all European countries, because I don't think you see it in quite the same way in some of the Eastern European countries. But there clearly is a phenomenon where um, millennial and at least younger generation X, but perhaps even across the range of generation X um, voters, Urban voters are defecting from centre-left parties to green parties. The Social Democrats in Germany are the clearest example because although they are in government in the moment, the coalition, they're in a, in a very weak position and the Greens have now basically supplanted them as the uh, second party in German politics and opinion poll terms and when, when it's manifested in elections like the European Parliament elections. And I think that that has got something to do with environmental issues and I think it's got also something which isn't really to do with environmental issues which is is the breakdown of the old centre-left coalitions that were you know historically mobilised the industrial working class and sections of the professional middle class in in cities and that political coalition is is breaking apart and the Greens are one of the beneficiaries 
of that, what it means in terms of how governments respond to green questions, I think that that's a, that's a lot, lot more difficult because as you kind of uh, hinted at... I mean, it, the thing is, no one's ever done that before. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's a little bit in Germany, of course, the Greens have a long history in Germany of having significant influence on policy making, But more broadly around Europe, the idea that a green vote wouldn't just be a way of signalling some frustration or dissatisfaction, but demanding behavioural change, including, of course, on the part of the voters, not just on the part of governments. I don't think anyone's really ever taken that seriously. And it would completely upend some aspects of our democratic politics, not least it would be very unpopular. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that the um, many green voters are not actually voting to change their, their own behaviour. <laughs> voters don't often their vote own to change behaviour. I suspect that they're voting on green issues in this respect because they want governments to do something more without quite connecting to the fact of what that might mean in terms of their own individual lives. But there's no way around it. Climate change in particular has forced its way onto the electoral agenda, not just the policy agenda. I'd say just even dramatically over the last six months so in a way that it hasn't before and I think it was kind of true at the end of the the 80s I mean after all it was a European Parliament election that first saw the Greens spring to 15% I think it was 1989 in the United Kingdom but in terms of climate change I think that this is a very recent phenomenon and yet when you look at the leadership contest to become the next UK Prime Minister it doesn't seem to feature that contest has this deep air of unreality about it we've got all these people making all of these not policy commitments but sort of philosophical commitments to a certain kind of conservatism as though we lived in a world where you just have to wish it and then it happens my feeling as I read these sort of existential streams of tweets from candidates trying to work out what conservatism might mean in the 21st century is it's got almost nothing to do with many of the things that people care about and then on the other side it's all irrelevant anyway because there's only one question which is the Brexit question. So to finish with that question, come back to where we started and as you said we tend to think of it in isolation and far too many of these candidates assume that what happens depends on who wins and what that person wants. So there is also a key question coming up for the Irish government. The Irish government played a very skillful hand and more or less bet its fortunes on the withdrawal agreement. The withdrawal agreement looks like it's in serious trouble. Is there a point at which the Irish government has to make a choice which will impact on what the British government's able to do? I think that the Irish government didn't just bet on the withdrawal agreement. They bet on it will either be the withdrawal agreement or Britain won't leave the, the European Union. So in that sense, they've still got the second part of the bet in play. That and as you described it, that's still looking like a reasonable bet. I think it's hard to judge the reasonable aspect um, of it because, I mean, partly because we said a lot of things have turned out not to be right on this. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, offer more hostages to fortune in that respect. All I would say is it's not played out yet. I think that the complication for Ireland is is that whilst there were others, perhaps even for a while. Merkel, I'm not so sure about that, certainly not Macron, in the European Union, who would have preferred it if there had been a way for Britain to retreat from withdrawal. You know, Ireland is probably getting more isolated on that question now. Because if you're at the European Union governments and you look at what's gone on in domestic politics in Britain, particularly since January, the attempts to pass the withdrawal agreement, and you say, how do you 
keep that politics in the European Union and have any kind of stable relationship, you look at it and say, it's just not going to work. So I think Macron's position of like Britain needs to be out is actually gaining in support. And in that sense, that is bad news for Ireland. On the other hand, you still got to deal with the actual mechanism by which you could get to an orderly withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union, and we're a long, long way from that at the moment. Are there any concessions that the Irish government could make to allow an orderly withdrawal if it really, really comes to the crunch and it looks like that bet is going to be a losing bet and Britain just being either kicked out or crashing out is a realistic possibility? Is there anything that the Irish government can do to ease our way out? From I mean, where we are now. I think that, you know, in principle, you could say that they could time limit the backstop, but from their point of view, then that's not a backstop at all. So I think that's pretty hard to swallow. In principle, though, how it would work in practice is finding some means by which there was a greater say for Northern Ireland itself. What happened at the point in which the backstop had to come into play and there was a possibility of regulatory um, divergence? But that's pretty difficult when you don't have devolved government in Northern Ireland or you have devolved government but it's not in action at the moment we don't have the Stormont institutions operating which I think has been a significant constraint in all this and in terms of Northern Ireland's own politics is is that something shifted there too because the alliance won one of the seats so is in one sense if you're the Irish government you look at what happened in Northern Ireland and you think okay our hands strengthened a bit because actually of the three seats available only one of them was won by somebody who was opposed to the backstop even though both Protestant parties, the Ulster Unionists and the Democratic Unionists, are opposed. There is so much that we haven't talked about. Nicola Sturgeon is now marking in 2020 as the date when she wants the next Scottish independence referendum. We mentioned Wales. We haven't talked about Wales. Helen, your general theme that when historians look back on this, this may not be the Brexit years, this may be the breakup of the UK years. If that's true these European elections will feature in that story, I think, unquestionably. It is. I'm not sure there'll be the breakup of the, Europe, of the United Kingdom years, except impossibly in regard to um, Northern Ireland, but they will be the, the United Kingdom as a multinational state pulled absolutely to its you know, core problems. And nothing that we've seen in the last week is plausibly arresting that process. No, I, I don't see that at all. In part because in the Scottish case, what you have is, is the strengthening of the Scottish National Party under conditions which... If the UK does end up leaving the European Union, it makes Scottish independence extremely difficult. Boy, it is complicated. <laughs> this week's main episode is going to be with Jared Darman, but next week we're going to be back to this. At some point, if nothing else, the 217 candidates to be the Conservative Party's leader will be whittled down to a few and then to two. And when that happens, we may have a slightly clearer idea of who, if anyone, can square the circle of British politics. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.